Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. We are continuing going through the New Testament, and we are, I would say, smack dab in the middle of Romans because we've already done a number number of episodes, but we're still going to be hanging out in chapter one. Uh, But this has been fun so far. Uh, Great conversations on just how different perspectives on Romans. We talked about it for an episode. We had a great interview with Michael Gorman. Man, that was like, I always love the interviews we have you're able to tap into some great people, mm-hmm. but there's, there's a couple of them that are even like, man, that's even better. Yeah. Uh, it, it's like, if there was a cherry on the cherry on top yeah. and that was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah he's, Mike, a great guy. Mike, he's just a great guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So hopefully everyone was edified by that. So what are we doing today? Well, we're going to look at Romans, like what's the basic core argument of Paul and the theological kind of discussion in chapters one, two, three, one, well, probably one, two, and three. And, uh, see how this applies to us today. And we'd probably say that if we were to divide it up, while we've already talked about how one through eight is a chunk, nine through 11 is a chunk, 12 through 15 is a chunk, and then 16 is a a chunk. That's kind of like a way to divide it. I think Um, the common thing, and I think Gorman, Michael Gorman actually might have referenced this on the previous, uh, last week's podcast, is typically one through four. mm -hmm. So one through eight is kind of the theological uh, argument, but one through four is self-contained. Okay. And then five through eight, Paul kind of says this kind of the same argument, but in a different way. And then nine through 11 and nine through 11 is what a, what about Israel? And then 12 through 16 is usually wrapped up together as one thing. Mm-hmm. Even though four parts, one through four, four through eight, five through eight, nine through 11 and 12 through 16. Okay. It is the interesting thing though. And this is a good study tip just for folks consulting an outline. Mm-hmm. Like it's very helpful. When, like don't go to the commentaries first. Cause then you're not doing any thinking. Right. But start off. Like, are you actually reading the text and are you actually trying to say, how is this, how is this book, whether it's a letter or a book, how is it actually broken down? Does there seem to be kind of a flow? Like, are you noticing anything? And then what do you see in the beginning of a, whether it's the beginning of a commentary or being a, a beginning of a study Bible, they'll often propose an outline of, of how the way something is divided. I've always found that a helpful way just to get a, a bearing. And I mean, you're even doing that yourself. You've been talking about how you've been working on a commentary on revelation. And so your own outline might be different than the way other outlines would read, right? Yeah, to some extent. Now, for the average person, what I would say is actually, I would say go to the commentary first until you've learned the skill of how to figure out how it's structured. And then, because if you're not doing it on your own, you don't really know what you're looking for other than your Bible has heading. You're just kind of relying on that. And what you're really wanting to look for, and we'll we'll do some of this as we get to Colossians and, and Ephesians and Corinthians and these different letters. You want to look for therefores. You want to look for, we'll see this in the book of Romans where he's going to say four, 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 the, you know, but now you need a good translation. So you, mm-hmm. uh, the NIV is not the most trustworthy translation for doing that. Cause it just, it's more concerned with, with readability in English. What you did not say is that the NIV is not trustworthy. You mean right. for this type of study when you're, you're did I use uh, the word trustworthy. Well, you did. And I yeah, know what you mean. Yeah, you, but, you didn't do it inappropriately. Right. It's right. Just, I just wanted to make sure people aren't hearing it for incorrectly. this task. Yes. It's a great translation. You can study it. It's, this is not like a cultic translation or anything, but when you're doing what you're asking to do, you want to do, uh, you want to look at translations that are a little more, Consistent you know, rigid. To the or, original, right? So yeah, yeah really briefly, uh, translations have a spectrum and that spectrum on one side is faithfulness to the original text. And on the other side of the spectrum is readability to the modern day reader. And most translations are obviously, they're somewhere in the middle. They, they all are. And all translations are interpretations. You just cannot translate without interpreting. What, what's this guy mean? And how do I say that in my language? So you have on the faithfulness to the text side of the spectrum, you might have like the New King James. Uh, you might have the New Revised Standard. You might have the New American Standard. You might have the Net Bible. Mm-hmm. You might even have the ESV. And they're yeah, kind of yeah. all in that bucket over there. And then on the faithfulness to the original, uh, faithfulness to the uh, modern language, well, on the very far side of the spectrum, you can have the message, mm-hmm. New Living Translation. And then not far from that, but still faithfulness to the English is the NIV. So that's mm-hmm. kind of where the NIV is. And, and the NIV is the most popular translation in, in the English-speaking world. And it's and it is a great translation. It's not a great translation maybe for Romans, mm-hmm. for the, some of the conversation that we're going to have today. But again, for the, what we want to do to find structure and organization, 
you're looking for key words like how does he like in the book of James, you're going to see my brothers, my brothers, or mm -hmm. depending on your, your translation, my brothers and sisters. And clearly that statement, my brothers, is he's starting a new paragraph. He's starting mm -hmm. a new section. And you'll see it in the book of James because the, the chapter and verse breaks are pretty, pretty consistent with yeah. chapter two, verse one, my brothers, three, verse one, my brothers. Well, and then you're looking for therefores. Romans 12, verse one is probably one of the most famous therefores mm -hmm. in the Bible. And okay, therefore is concluding, you know, an application based on something he previously said. So you're kind of looking for those things there. Obviously, it's much easier to do this in the Greek than it is in English, because Greek was meant to be listened to, and you have to hear structure. Whereas we're, we read and we are look, we're looking for structure, mm -hmm. and we usually see structure because we have a chapter break, a paragraph break, a section heading. So we're not trained to look in the text for these things because we're trained to look for chapter break, verse break section headings, but it actually it's very apparent in the original text there. And that's why translations like the Net Bible or the ESV New American Standard, they're going to be easier because they're more concerned with faithfulness to the original text. And they're going to show some of these things that might not show in an English, uh, like an NIV, if that makes yeah. sense. And we'll yeah. see some of this as, as we move forward. We'll, we'll do some of this. Yeah. And just one button uh, to clarify, you did not anywhere in there use the word a literal or word for word translation because that just doesn't exist. There's no such you, thing as that. Yeah. Yeah. Because like the point you made, possible. you cannot translate from one language to another without interpreting something. Right. And so that is the goals. I remember in Greek class, you would use the word more wooden. You wouldn't say do a literal yeah. translation, do, do more wooden, try to yeah. just be more exact. And that's why, you know, when we read maybe a new American standard, they, they do a really good job of trying to stay faithful to that original. And that's why it might not be the best translation to maybe meditate on at times. Cause you're oh. like, okay, this is, it's just kind of clunky on, in terms of how they phrase things. And that's why, you know, something like the NIV might just be smoother, It's but they're, but they're smoothing it out. I do all my meditation on the New American Standard. So you, well, you're just yeah. more spiritual, so you could. Well, it's just what I had stuff. back in the yeah. '90s, back when it first came out, right? '95 yeah. edition, uh, when it first came out. I think actually mine's a '78 edition. So is it really? You're reading yeah. that? Huh? Well, that's all I've had. I haven't changed okay. it. And the okay. only problem with the '78 edition, the New American Standard has a, it has some thighs and yes, some thousand yeah. thighs and stuff like that, and or these or whatever it is. Yeah. Anyway, so I hope that makes sense uh, as we move forward. But uh, yeah. yeah, so if you're new to this, then use start with a commentary. Mm -hmm. and see if you can figure out why they're saying that this is a structure. If you're more skilled at it, then yeah, certainly come up with your own idea and then go to a commentary. We got to remember the commentary are, they're professionals, they're experts. They're probably pretty, you know, pretty, pretty good at this. And then if two or three commentaries disagree, which most of you don't have access to two or three commentaries, uh, then you're like, oh, why, why not? Mm -hmm. But it's really helpful to know the order of the flow of, of uh, the thought uh, within a text and where the author's going. So let me begin by saying this, Vinny, that um, Michael Gorman made reference to um, different approaches. And let me kind of spell those out a little bit more. Mm -hmm. He talked about the apocalyptic, the participationist and things of that nature. So I think he defined the participationist, which, and you clarified, you know, the union in Christ idea. Mm -hmm. And I am fully on board with that. And we'll, we'll flesh that out more as we, as we go. I like to use the word missional reading, the idea of the fact that God is calling us not only to be his children, not only to be in his kingdom, not only to be his people, but also to be his people through whom he does the, the work of his kingdom. So therefore, we're in Christ and we're in Christ and that has benefits of us, what we might say in terms of salvation, but also in terms of a mission. Being, and I would put this more in garden language, in, in Eden language, that being in Christ means I'm now in his, I'm, I'm reflecting his image and glory for which we were created as human beings to do and to be. The apocalyptic basically says that God's breaking into creation and he's doing something new. And that something new oftentimes can be as opposed to what he was doing. So there can sometimes be a distinction between Old and New Testament. You'll often hear, and I know, I know you use the word covenantal a lot, um, mm -hmm. and I think you kind of would identify yourself more as a covenantal theologian. Yeah, um, that's fine. I, I would, I would affirm it. What I don't like is when people say, "Are you a covenant theologian?" I'm like, I'm not answering your question okay. because I don't like being boxed into. Mm -hmm. You might think, therefore, that means this, and I'm like, oh, that's the part I don't agree with. But the covenant basically is what God gave to Abraham. So if we start in the garden, we have God's creation of humanity in his presence, uh, not in his presence, but bringing them into his presence to reflect his image, to reflect his glory uh, to the creation and to rule. Uh, they sin, they get expelled from the garden, and 
the question now is how is humanity going to be restored back to his garden presence or how's God's presence going to be restored back to his creation? So Abraham is called and God makes a covenant with Abraham. And a covenant can be seen as a binding agreement between two parties, mm -hmm. but it's usually the greater and the lesser, a king and his people. That's kind of the biblical covenant. It's like God's the king and we're subject peoples. Uh, the king says, I'm going to do this, which usually is I'm going to bless you. And if you don't obey, I'm going to curse you. So the blessings and curses of the book of Deuteronomy is the covenant. Or in Jesus saying, blessed, blessed, blessed. And then woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, you hypocrites. There's your blessings and curses. And it's blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And the people's responsibility is to be obedient to the law, to be obedient to the covenant. When you frame it that way, it might often leave people with a taste of like, okay, so God's up in heaven, like legislating, oh, curse that person because they disobeyed my covenant. And the biblical story is a story of love. And the biblical story is about God, a God of love and a God of grace. And it's not this like, I'm going to curse you. It's more like, hey, look, if you don't do that, we're going to see this in Romans 1. If you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. You're going to reap the, your own consequences and, and it's going to be bad for you. So I don't want us to understand the idea of covenant in that nasty God is a punishment God, God's mm -hmm. a God of wrath way, but you don't see covenant in the book of Romans. N.T. Wright argues that you don't see covenant in the book of Romans because it's just presupposed everywhere. It's, it's mm -hmm. just all over the place. But then getting back to the point, then the covenant is what God made with Abraham to say, this is the means through which I'm going to restore Eden that was lost with Adam and Eve and, and their sins. So it's going to be this promise through Abraham. And ultimately that promise to Abraham is Jesus that we're going to get to today. If mm -hmm. I don't stop talking, we'll eventually get that. <laughs> All right. Good. So let's get into the text then. Okay, uh, very good. So Romans one, we, I think we talked about how the, the first uh, 15 verses are the, an introduction. You get verses 16 and 17, which are kind of the thesis statement. You know, it's the launching point, if you will, uh, different, different scholars call it different things. How, how would you, uh, what would you call verses 16 and 17? Or do well, you put that much emphasis on it? I don't put that much emphasis on it. I think that's the missional application of, okay. the, of what's earlier. I think the thesis statement is the gospel that Paul announces in the first four verses. Okay. And he says that gospel was promised beforehand, this is verse two, mm -hmm. through the prophets. In verse one, he calls it the gospel of God. It's verse three, it's about Jesus who is the fulfillment of the promises to David. And verse four, he was declared the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead by means of the spirit. There you mm -hmm. go. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ is the means through which God is reconciled in the world as the promise one. It's through the means of his death and resurrection and the coming presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit is going to be central in Romans chapter eight. I think what Paul says in 16 and 17, then it says, as we, I think we discussed this, and that is, and I am not ashamed of that gospel. Mm -hmm. And we're going to really see this in 1 Corinthians. And I think I mentioned that before also. Yeah. But we'll, we'll talk about this in 1 Corinthians because the gospel is about a crucified Jewish Messiah. And what's there's no honor in that. And in the Roman world, you gain honor by stepping on the little guy and by being powerful and rich and wealthy and all those things. And in the kingdom of God, you gain power by loving your neighbor and laying down your life for them. Mm. And Paul's like, and I'm not ashamed of that. And the reason why he's not ashamed of it is because you need it, because it is the power of God for salvation. And Roman and First Corinthians one is going to have a really wonderful discussion of this, so we'll save that for then. So, yeah. So we like, however we divide this up, the first seventeen verses of this book are just amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and it, we'll talk, I think, in First Corinthians on how to read a letter. But usually, a letter opening will set the, Absolutely. in a sense, the the stage, the tone for how the letters to be read. And then we get to verse 18 and verse 18 through 32, the rest of chapter one, this gets really gnarly. This is condemnation. It almost seems as though someone, there's someone who's being identified on trial or it's a courtroom or something like that. Yes, but I think we need to go back and think and say, you know, have we been reading the text? I don't want to use the word wrong or wrongly, uh, incorrectly, inconsistently. Maybe that might be the better word. And you and I have talked about this a little bit offline. Uh, so I'm, I'm writing a commentary in the book of Revelation. Let me just tie that in now, because Revelation is kind of about, about wrath. Mm -hmm. In the very beginning, I'm like, wait a second, guys. What's the most famous verse, verse in the Bible? John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. First John chapter 4, God is love. Romans chapter 2, it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. 
we recognize the fact that God is love. Fundamentally, that's who he is. And then we go to the book of Revelation and go, yeah, but he's also this God of wrath. And if you don't obey him, he's going to give you boils and locusts and plagues. And, and it's going to be really, really nasty. It's like, do you see the inconsistency here? Now, some of you go, well, I don't see any inconsistency. That, that's how I understand it. God is love. But if you disobey him, he's going to send you to hell. He's going to punish you. And I think, and I and I don't deny that the ultimate judgment, I don't deny that the fact that there is a judgment day. So I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, okay, have we been misreading this and saying, okay, the wrath, so Romans 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And is the wrath of God, and I think this plays out throughout the Old Testament, not just in the book of Romans and also in the, in the, um, the book of Revelation, is simply God saying, you guys, you're going to get what you deserve. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to the Garden of Eden, and I do think this is Genesis language, Genesis imagery, and we'll talk about that in a second. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, God says, look, if you do this, you will die. Now, now why? Well, because God's going to expel them from his presence, and they're no longer going to take from the tree of life. They're going to die. I know this is not for your good. And then what happens when, when he, what humanity decides at the garden is to say, we will decide right and wrong for ourselves. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the question is, is who defines good and evil? Adam and Eve say, you know, it's desirable. It looks good for food. It's pleasing to the eye. You know what? I'm going to decide for myself right now that this is good. And they take it into their own hands. Whereas God's the one who says, the psalmist says, only God knows all things. Only God knows the future. So how does any king make a decision on what's good and evil when they don't know what the necessary outcome of that decision is going to be? But God knows the outcome of that decision. Mm -hmm. So if we let good and evil be defined by God, and so that's your difference. The point then of that is, is that when humanity takes good and evil into their own hands, they suffer the consequences. And what's the consequences? War famine. Most famines are caused because one of the kings is, one of the generals is sitting on the food and won't disperse it to his people until the people vote for that, for, for mm. the person that they want in charge. I mean, one of the most tragic things that's happened in the last four or five, or maybe, I'm not sure how many, how many years right now, is Yemen. Um, mm -hmm. The people, There's plenty of food to feed the people in Yemen. But the war in Yemen is, there's no way. We're not, we're not giving food to your people because you're on the wrong side of the, of the aisle. And these people have the guns. And that's often the case. I remember the great famine in Ethiopia was there was food that was there, and whether it's the world providing food or not, but that food wasn't being dispersed. So you think of the wrath of God as humanity reaping the consequences of its own decisions, mm -hmm. not God going, let me strike you. Oh, strike you. Oh, boils for you, right? Lightning for you, floods for you. It's humanity reaping the consequences of their own disobedience. Okay. And I think that's what happens. But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And then in verse 18, for, verse 20. And the word for is often a really important word in the Greek text. So in English, we almost always use the word for as a preposition. Uh, this is a gift for you. Give mm -hmm. this for that. Or, But the Greek word for here is indicating the reason why in most, most situations. So the reason why the wrath of God is revealed from heaven is because well, since the beginning of the world, his divine attributes have been clearly seen, being understood, and people without excuse, verse uh, 21, for even though they didn't, they knew God, they didn't honor him with God. They became futile in their spectrum, and their foolish heart was darkened, verse uh, 22. They professed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of God for uh, images, and therefore God gave them over. Ah, is this God inflicting them with suffering? Or is this God giving them over to their own actions, mm -hmm. they, over to the lust of their hearts to impurity? And I think that's what you're what you're looking at. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over. And you keep seeing this phrase, God gave them over. Yeah, yeah. So you had mentioned there's Genesis, a Genesis idea here. Yeah. So what's the connection there? Because like we've talked about this, like when we talked about the gospel of John, how there's a very clear opening yeah. in John's gospel and it's very you know, in the beginning. Okay. That's very obvious. I'm not seeing in the beginning language here. How might I ping my ear to the Genesis account? Okay. So you have clear references to Genesis by the fact that verse 20 says for since the creation of the world, there you go. Verse 20, verse 21, although they knew God, Adam and Eve knew God professing to be wise. Verse 22, which is this wisdom, it'll make you wise. Uh, that's what the serpent tells Adam and Eve. 
And then verse 23, they exchange the glory of God. Ah, that's what I'm we're supposed to do by being his image bearers, to reflect his glory. Let's put this context um, of this section in, in terms of its context in Romans. What Paul's doing in Romans 1, 18, 18 through 32 is saying, the Gentiles knew God because he was known through creation, and yet they still are sinful and corrupt, and the problem in humanity is, of course, their own sinfulness. Then we're going to get to Romans 2 and say, well, what about the Jews? Okay, well, so God chose Israel, and there we go. That's going to be the solution. And remember, the, the goal is always to bring the nations into the fold. So the nations are corrupt. Okay, cool. Let's turn to the, to, turn to the Jews, and that's going to be our solution. So chapter 1 is, yeah, the Gentiles are corrupt and fallen. They knew God, but they did not honor him as God. And God's the source of wisdom, but they decided to take wisdom into their own hands. So what's interesting is Paul obviously didn't write in chapter divisions. We talk, we've talked about that before. So this is something that's been put in later to help us. But he doesn't use the word Gentile or Jew right. to identify this. But it's, it's like unanimously agreed upon that this is what's happening here. So how, how do we, uh, you know, from a scholarly standpoint, like everyone knows like this is what's happening here. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's largely because of, especially in chapter one, the types of things that are being talked about, uh, especially in, in many of the the sins that are being identified, especially the, the the sexual sins that we see in terms of uh, what people are doing to their bodies and those sorts of things, the covetousness. These are things that, especially in a first century Roman context, Roman Gentiles are going to be known for a lot of these things, right? Right. Especially if I'm sitting around this congregation and I'm hearing Paul's letter for the first time, and I, I do have this mixed congregation of Jew and Gentile, pre predominantly Gentile, I'm the, I'm the minority Jewish person hearing this thing. Yeah, you guys are you guys are nasty. <laughs> like, look what Paul sees what's happening here. Like, th that's probably going to be some of the vibe that's seeing in the end of chapter one, right? Yeah. But, so but chapter one is identified in Gentile type ways. Yes, it is. So chapter one is Gentiles for two reasons. Most apparent is the fact that chapter two clearly turns the conversation mm -hmm. to, hey, by the way, you guys have no excuse. Chapter two, verse one. Therefore, you have no excuse. And it starts talking about law there. So it's exactly. Obviously, okay. And you pass judgment upon those. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on to say, and you who have the law. And then verse 14, you know, when Gentiles that don't have the law, they do these things. And but you, so, you know, verse 17, if you bear the name Jew, so the mm -hmm. you is clearly the Jew. So that's your first indication that he's changing the subject in chapter two. So that means chapter one is about the Gentile. Secondly, the Gentile is clearly from verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's not going to be a way of describing the Jewish person. They mm -hmm. might, it might ultimately be true about them, but you would never describe the Jewish person in that in that vein. There, this is this is the the world and the nations. And let's also be clear again, just in case people are lost. The word Gentile is the Greek word ethnos. It just simply means the nations. Mm -hmm. And the Jewish way of thinking, there was us and there was them. So there's Jews and then there's them. And the them is the nations, so the word Gentile. So the word Gentile doesn't define any one group of people. Mm -hmm. It's just everybody else. It's just the not Jew. The not Jew. Mm -hmm. That's exactly correct. Yep. Yeah. And then even if we were to skip ahead real quick, mm -hmm. chapter three kind of blends this argument together, yeah. saying like, okay, so then what advantage does the Jew have? Exactly. All of sin. It's obviously he's making this argument that climb, you know, has this little peak uh, later. So yeah, but yeah. we're not there yet. And that, well, let's, let's kind of put that in context for everyone, at least maybe now and say, the point is, God's going to bring redemption to the nations, but mm -hmm. the nations themselves were lost, and then God called Israel to be the means, mm -hmm. and then they were just as lost as the nations. So what advantage has there being a Jew? Well, there's a few advantages, but nonetheless, they're all sinners. And so, oh, well, how's God going to do this? What's God going to do? And then that's going to climax in chapter three. And we'll, we'll save that to the end of the show. Yeah. So then to N.T. Wright's point, this is where he would argue that it's assuming a covenantal backbone mm -hmm. yeah. of, of what's happening here, because it's it's alluding back and inferring back to the just the Old Testament covenants. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it and hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor, if this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just wanna get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we wanna encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out, and now we'll get back to the podcast. So then if we finish up chapter one, just to talk about this, man, this, this gnarly 
accusation that is thrown against the Gentiles, the not Jew, it climaxes in verse 32. My translation says, though they know God's decree. So we could say, okay, the Gentiles, the not Mm -hmm. Jews, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Like, man, this is like just condemning it. It's it's strong things, but it's I think it's something that we need to think about. And what I think it is is this: they not only do these things, but they actually give hearty approval. In other words, they know it's wrong, they know it leads to death, but then they turn around and go, Yeah, but actually it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And they define it as a good thing. And you can look at all kinds of like dramatic examples in history and say, American slavery, the church was right behind it saying, yep, it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, how could they say that slavery is the right thing to do when they know it's a it's repulsive? And segregation, the church was, was, was right behind segregation issues. Mm-hmm. I was just reading some stuff today on uh, apartheid in South Africa and how mm-hmm. much the, the Dutch church unanimously wow. supported and condoned apartheid. In fact, when pastors a pastor spoke out against, I, I, I want to say the date was like the 70s, but 1970s, spoke out against it, he got defrocked. It's like, you're, you're done. You're out of the ministry because you're speaking against apartheid because this is such hmm. the right thing to do. And they've come come to think of it. You can look at other examples. Back when Galileo and Copernicus were saying, hey, guess, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that the uh, earth's the center of the universe after all. Of course, it's the center of the universe. The book of Genesis says so. This is the way God did it. And it's like, and then all of a sudden we realize that these guys are correct. And that's the sun's actually the center of our solar system. And that's just the way it is. Oh, you know. Genesis doesn't actually say that. We just mm-hmm. kind of thought that it did. All right. So those aren't examples that correlate specifically to what Romans is getting at. But the point of that is that we find ways to justify the things that we're doing as though, well, they're actually it's actually good. I guess actually maybe slavery and whatever is actually a really good example because we justified it. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a horrid thing and we, and we justified it. How often I was even going to say, do we justify it now yeah. in things like uh, you looking in China, China produces so many of our goods, the world's goods, mm-hmm. and especially like electronics and any trinket you have around your house probably comes from there. And then we justify things like we, we know the working conditions where you have eight year old kids who are working six plus days a week for nothing in horrible conditions, dangerous conditions, just so we could have cheap stuff. Right. So we don't have to pay much and we justify it. The church lady is not going to sit there and say like, yeah, that's you know, like, hopefully not, not be bigoted in that way, maybe, but giving a benefit of the doubt. But then it's like, oh, but it's giving them a job. Uh, what, what, what would they be without us? And so even though that way, there's that self-justification yeah, where, you know, something's not right, but you, you try to convince yourself of something good just to, to try to, you know, find some way around it when you know yeah. it's wrong. And so the point would be then is we need to look at our own life mm-hmm. and go, wow, am I doing this? And have I done it? Cause we have, and we do, we all yep. do. And the reason why this ministry is called determined truth is not because we have determined the truth, but because our goal is to determine it. Mm-hmm. And then when we determine what it is by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy spirit, we then need to live in accordance with it. And that's the problem is I often don't want to live in accordance with it. So therefore I'm going to believe this over here. And then I'm going to find ways to justify this over here. So I don't have to live and do that over there. That's just simply the way we live and what we do. And so we need to stop and go, yeah, am I doing that also? Am I looking at that poor person and go, I'm not going to give you any money because you probably deserve your lot in life. When we have never even stopped to ask that person, what's happening and how'd you get there and what's going on and how can I help you? We've, this is just the way I was raised. I was raised to think, if you help those people out, you're probably just making it worse. They're mm-hmm. just going to go buy drugs and do these different things. And uh, you're not actually helping them out. And the reality is, you know, if I bought them a sandwich, I helped them out for a couple of hours. I did. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if I do give them some money, because I didn't have time to go in there and get a sandwich, they might be doing drugs with it. But you know what I found out? I found this out later being in pastoral ministry. You realize the reason why they do drugs is to numb their pain. They, oh, they're absolutely. not on the streets because they're drug addicts. Mm-hmm. They're drug addicts because they're on the streets. Mm-hmm. They become beyond help. There's, there's, there's no way for society to really be able to help these people at all. You can't put them in a facility. But the reality is you still can buy them something food for today. Mm-hmm. You still oh, can and this thing, they're yeah. still an image bearer of God. Yeah, that's right. And so we've justified mm-hmm. callousness and hardness of heart mm-hmm. 
The abortion issue has been a huge issue in the last couple of months, right? And the answer, mm-hmm. and the answer is, yeah, it's all because of illicit sex. Actually, it's not. That's that's a part of it, but it's a small part of it. And so we we don't listen. To, oh, well, you, you know, if you're not pro-life, then it's like, well, okay, let's, but let's still talk about this. And, let, and what about these other issues? And what about these other things? And so I think we need to look at this and go, yeah, yeah, am I doing this? Yeah, absolutely. We move into chapter two. And so like we said, this moves into addressing the Jews. Yeah. So I don't know, what, what can we glean from this section? Because there's the theology and the, there's probably going to be some practical stuff here as well. The point of this is not anti-Semitic mm-hmm. because A, Paul's Jewish. And he says in later on chapter nine and chapter 10, I, I'm, I would die for you guys. I, I'd give my life over if it would save you guys. It's love for them. The point of that is, is the Jewish people are just are no better than the Gentiles. It's not like they're worse. They're just no better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so chapter two, verse one, you have no excuse. Uh, every one of you who passes judgment for what you judge for another, you condemn yourself. You're doing, you're practicing the same things. It's like, what? Yeah, you're practicing the same things. And then verse nine, it says, there'll be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek. And then this leads us into verse 17, which goes on to say, but if you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law and you boast in God and you know his will and you approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Well, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And then here's verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Mm. Ah, And that's a significant point because the reason why God called Israel was so that Israel could be a light to the nations. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about blessings and curses, oh, God's just this evil ogre that stands up there and says, if you do something wrong, I'm going to curse you. And the answer is no, because when you do something wrong, you're defiling God's name. Hey, God's reputation is at stake. This is Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37. From the sake of my holy name, I'm, I'm about to act because you've blasphemed my name. And so that's the way of looking at it. Hey, God's this God of love and mercy, and you're making him look like a God of evil and of hate. All right, then verse 26, he says, so if an uncircumcised man, so that's a Gentile, if an uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Oh, if a Gentile does the law, then are they not Jewish? If we can just kind of use that language. And oh yeah, 28. For one is a Jew is not outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but one is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now, again, that can be misunderstood. So that we think, oh, it's all about my inner being, my inner person. Mm-hmm. The, the heart is all that matters. Paul would go, what are you talking about? There's no way Paul would ever think that way. Because well, especially Paul, once you get to chapter 12. <laughs> exactly, right? Because from the heart comes obedience. Mm-hmm. So that's not what he's talking about. He's, he's simply saying it starts in the heart and then it becomes this outward expression. So, yep. Hmm. So you finish up chapter two. Like I could just imagine the congregation hearing this because mm. you just have this great introduction to left with two chapters of basic basically blasting everyone i always think of the book of amos when i read the first two chapters oh, the okay, first two yeah, chapters yeah. Okay. of romans where amos kind of goes around geographically blasting everyone until he gets to israel uh and it's like kind of the surprise attack and it's like man the, the same thing must have been happening here and so what are you left with in this desperate desperate place yeah and again Let's also be careful that we don't look at this and go, oh, yeah, you know, the law is this evil thing that mm-hmm. no one can do, right? And that's common, a common way we read this and go, well, yeah, you know, the, the Gentiles didn't obey it, but they only had the, the law and the knowledge of God through creation. The Jews didn't obey it, and they had the law themselves. Yeah, the law just cannot be obeyed. And we'll get this in the, in the book of Galatians. The law is good mm-hmm. and leads to salvation for the one who does it. Well, even um, chapter seven of Romans has a very, the that, law is good. That's motive. what I'm going to say. Yeah. Romans yeah. seven twelve says the law is mm-hmm. holy yeah. and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is a good thing. The point of the law was that 
and of giving of the law was to Israel, to Israel was that they were to be a light to the world. That's simply, that was their role. And so it's not like God's like, gosh, you guys are bad, horrible. Let me punish you. It's like, I made you to save, to be the means to it. I, I bring my goodness to the world and, and you haven't done that. So now what are we going to do? So verse 23 then says, you know, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God? Um, and they were supposed to bring honor to God. That's the whole point. They're boasting, oh, we've got the law and you Gentiles don't. We eat the right foods and we don't eat the wrong foods and we're circumcised and we practice right sacred days and you guys don't. And they look down upon the others and Paul's answer is like, well, you're boasting in the law, but you're not bringing honor to God through the nations. And as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles uh, because of you. So uh, as you said, yeah, this leaves humanity in this desperate, desperate place. And so the answer is, yeah. Chapter one, the Gentiles knew of God and they exchanged it for a lie. Chapter two, the Jews were given the law and the task of making God known to the nations and to the Gentiles, and they didn't do it. So where do we go? What do we yeah. do now? Chapter like, three. Yeah. Other, other than needing a hug fest and tissue. <laughs> there you go. So this word, at least this is chapter three. And chapter three then begins by saying, well, what good is there in being a Jew then? You know, what does the Jew have any advantage? I mean, the point of chapters one and two is the Jews are just as bad as the Gentiles. And Paul's like, well, they have a lot of advantages. For one, verse two, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And I don't think we stop on that verse, that word enough. An oracle, rarely if even ever used to describe mm -hmm. the scriptures. Mm -hmm. An oracle is a Gentile word, the oracle at Delphi. You go there okay. to find knowledge of the gods and of the will and of the future. It's a Gentile word to describe a word of message, a message for the, from the gods. So the point of that is you were given a message from the God or from God, not the gods, but from God to give to the nations and you weren't, you weren't faithful with it. So, you know, yeah. What point is there in being Israel? Well, you are, you're, you have a, you have a benefit, you have a blessing, but at the same time you haven't been faithful. And so now the faithlessness of Israel is going to have to lead to a solution. I mean, if Israel's unfaithful and God's plan was to be, to redeem the nations to the faithfulness of Israel, then the answer is, well, God's going to have to be the faithful one himself. Mm -hmm. Ah, there's your answer. Yeah. Gotcha. So yeah. we get to chapter three, verse 10 through 18 is kind of this next chunk. It, it, depending on how your Bible lays things out, sometimes they'll put uh, Old Testament quotes in a, in a different typeset. Mm -hmm. They'll indent it. It looks like the Psalms of, of the Old Testament. Yeah. And By the way, the New American Standard puts it in all caps. Okay. Yeah. Whenever they so, think it's an Old Testament quote or they're sure it's an Old Testament quote. Okay. So the ESV does that in a similar okay. way where they'll... Uh... So now we get this idea where, like I had mentioned in week one, when we talked about this, when I described TULIP. And, and I use this mm -hmm. word total depravity yeah. uh, and, and we, we played that out and that's going to be like a distinction between maybe I, I'd like, you know, maybe see where you're at. Cause I don't think we actually fleshed out and talked about that, but right. this is one of the areas I would say scripturally, certainly in Romans, an in, in area where that kind of idea would happen with the total depravity of mankind, where they're just, there's no willingness in, in human being to want to please God. Or, yeah. Romans 3, uh, 10 through 18 has this long string of passages, as you mentioned, that simply say, look, there's no one who does good. There's no one who's righteous. There's not even one. There's no one who fears God in verse 8. There's no fear of God before their eyes in verse 18. Uh, so where does this leave us? So um, yes, this is where we get the idea of the total depravity of, of man. The theme of this passage is, of course, God's acting despite the sinfulness of people. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing a study of, of the book of Genesis for a Bible study on, on Zoom on Wednesday nights. And we're going through the book of Genesis. And of course, you know, I grew up in the church a little bit. So when you go up to the church, you're like, oh, these are all the heroes of the faith. You read the stories in Genesis, you're like, these people are really bad. <laughs> yeah, they're messed I mean, up. Man. <laughs> the, the guy whose name, who's actually named Israel, his original mm -hmm. name is Jacob, which means the deceiver, which if yeah. I'm not mistaken, that's the serpent in the book of Genesis. Yep. You know, and he, there's not a whole lot of good in this guy at all, right? And there's sibling rivalry and there's, it's really not good. And the point of the book of Genesis is the fact that God's still acting and working in these people despite these people. Mm -hmm. He's still gracious and providential and providing through them this remnant so that the righteous one, Christ, will ultimately come. The idea of the total depravity of man comes actually more from Augustine. So let me clarify. I don't deny that all people are sinners. I think that's pretty clear. The question at hand is, are we all sinners because we inherited it from Adam or are we all sinners because we sin? Mm -hmm. That's the difference. 
the total depravity of man typically is this reformed theology that says we're all sinners because we inherit it from Adam. Well, there's some reason to believe that that's not necessarily the way we read the, the book of Romans. So Romans 5, 12, as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all shall be made alive. See, there we go. We all die in Adam mm -hmm. and we all inherit the sinfulness from, from Adam. Well, this idea comes from Augustine, really. And what happened is, is Augustine was reading the Latin translation in front of him. So Augustine probably did not know Greek. As great a scholar as he was, he didn't know Greek. So he has the Latin translation in front of him, which you may know is called the Vulgate. And the Latin incorrectly translates Romans 5.12. So the Latin phrase basically means, in whom, Adam, all sinned. And there's your idea of total depravity. But the Greek original text says, because all sin, or some translations might have like, in as much as all have sinned. And so the question is, is it a result of we inherited this from Adam or we're all sinners because we all sin? Yeah. But this is where you're going to have different just thoughts. So it's not like there's view A plus view B. There's going to be multiple views uh, in terms of what if you've ever taken a college class on anthropology, it means the study of humankind. So that's going to be like the technical term that's going to be dealing with here. So this is just one of the questions that theologians and biblical scholars wrestle with is what is the nature of humankind? And so that's where you just get different views. And, and that's where oftentimes this question is going to come up at. Yeah. And let me answer it really quickly. I know we're running uh, low on time here when we want to get a little bit farther tonight. And that's this. This is where my personal take stops and goes, hey, guys, does it really matter? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, we're both agreeing that we're all sinners. Mm -hmm. And some are going to, no, you have to affirm the total depravity of man that we're all sinners because we inherited this, this from Adam. And I'm like, okay, whatever. The bottom line is we're all sinners and we recognize that. Mm -hmm. And can we move on now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if there is an issue, chapters one and two, like it's blasting everyone, chapter three, hey, y'all are kind of done. Where does this leave us? Yeah. And I think the way we would ask the question by is by saying, where does this leave God? Because mm -hmm. the question in the book of Romans is God's righteousness and God's faithfulness to his covenant. And so very quickly here, let's look at Psalm chapter 98. And I actually meant to start tonight with that, but let's go to Psalm chapter 98, because I think this puts it into context a little bit better. So Psalm chapter 98, verses one through three says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. His, he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Ah, his righteousness has been revealed in the sight of the nations. In verse two, what does that mean? Well, he has remembered his faithfulness to the house of Israel. God's righteousness in the biblical text is defined as his faithfulness to Israel or his faithfulness to his covenant. Especially in, in like Psalm 98, he remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness, but this is clearly covenantal language. It's, this is yeah. not just some sort of ooey gooey hallmark love. This is a special kind of love that he has for Israel. So the question then is, well, where does this leave God? So if, mm -hmm. if all humanity is sinful and all humanity has despised God and fallen away from God. And yet he created humanity to be his, in his, his image bearers, to reflect his glory, to dwell in his garden presence. And then he called Israel to say, well, I'm going to save the, the nations through you. And then Israel failed to do the task and they were no better than the people that they were condemning. And the answer is chapter three, verses 21 and 22. There's our answer. Romans hmm. 3, 21 and 22. Do you want to read it? Sure. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is, for there is no distinction. So now this has been a major question since the time goes back, since back to 1975, 1976, as we discussed in our opening session. God's righteousness is his faithfulness to the covenant. And the question is, is how was God faithful to his covenant? What has been typically understood is that God's righteousness is something that he's given to us. It's this moral quality, uh, this attribute that God gives to us. But we just read Psalm 98, and God's righteousness is his faithfulness to his covenant. So the question at hand is, well, how has God been faithful to his covenant? And what we do is we go, well, it's been manifested through the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
Now, if you look at that phrase, and most translations render it something along those lines, it's redundant. It's through, the, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Well, faith in Jesus Christ and for all who believe says the same thing. If you look at the Net Bible, and I think you have it, and I'll put it up mm -hmm. on my screen here as well. It, it reads this way. And the Net Bible is a really good translation. It's a modern translation. It's a really good translation. It's a, kind of a, a, cons a consortium of a, lots of different scholarly work that they finally said, let's go to print on this. Uh, and it says this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been uh, attested by the law and the prophets. Uh, it's been disclosed, namely the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. And this is that point that we were discussing mm -hmm. earlier, and that's this. Is it the faith of Jesus Christ or is it Jesus Christ's faith? And the Greek is ambiguous. Mm -hmm. It just simply says the faith of Jesus Christ. And that could be his faithfulness, or it could be our faith in him. The problem mm -hmm. with saying it's our faith in him is that the next phrase says, for all who believe. That's that's saying the same thing. And you're not denying yeah. you're not denying that faith in Christ right. is essential. It's just correct. that's your, what you would argue is right. this verse isn't saying that. That's correct. Yeah. The whole point of it actually is that that's going to be the point of Paul's argument in the book of Galatians, for example. Mm -hmm. It's going to be... Yeah. Is it going to be through the law? And like, no, it's going to be through faith, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so faith is absolutely critical. But what Paul's saying is that God was faithful through Jesus. And let's go back to Romans chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three. All the nations have sinned. The Jews have sinned. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How's God going to be faithful to his covenant then? And the answer is through Jesus. Mm -hmm. Through the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus was the true Israelite, the true Adam, the true humanity. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And through his faithfulness, God was faithful to his covenant. And it's for all who believe. And though, and that's the key thing. Now, it's for all who believe, not for all who are circumcised. So then I would ask you the, on that second part, for all who believe, what is the object of their belief then there? Like, what, yes. how do you understand what Paul means Christ. There? Yeah, it's okay. Christ. Yeah, the okay. belief is certainly in Christ and the work of Christ. Life, mm -hmm. death, resurrection, ascension in heaven. Yeah. And that's why you, in your first statement, when you said it's just redundant to say faith in Christ for all who believe in Christ. So, yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah, you're like, it's the same thing. Exactly. So it makes much more sense. So let mm -hmm. me summarize it this way by saying this. It's about Jesus all along through and through. God was faithful to his covenant. He remains faithful to his covenant. And he did so because Jesus was faithful to God's covenant as the faithful Israelite. Yeah. Real quick, would you connect some of that even to what you see in the beginning of the Christ event at Jesus' baptism with you are my son with whom I'm well pleased? I mean, I should know these stories and I should be thinking back to that, not thinking this is Paul preaching a new thing. Yeah. So in the gospels, this is my son. Well, the mm -hmm. son is that phrase, my son is used for Israel. Mm -hmm. Hey, Pharaoh, what have you done to, my, to, to Israel? My children, my chosen, my son. The way I would actually use the baptism, I would say, I would simply say this, why was Jesus baptized? Mm -hmm. And people say, oh, well, because, uh, you know, it's a, a role model for us. It mm -hmm. never says that. Paul never says in Romans 6, you got to get baptized because mm -hmm. Jesus was baptized. Mm -hmm. Never in the never in the book of Acts, the letters of Paul or Peter, and it never says get baptized because Jesus was. And you think if that's the mm -hmm. purpose, that's that's a pretty good argument. Then you add to the fact that, well, Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist says he was baptizing with the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, now why was Jesus being baptized? Because Jesus was Israel, mm. and he was taking on the sins of Israel and being baptized for Israel and doing for Israel what Israel was not capable for doing for himself. Mm. So we bring in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions, not his. Mm -hmm. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Ah, Jesus was Israel. And now the reason why that quote is so significant is because Isaiah 53 is what we call a servant passage. And Christians will go, this is the best passage to preach to a Jew to, these, to this day, because it's all about Jesus and it's clearly all about Jesus. If you show Isaiah 53 to a Jewish person, they're going to say it's about Israel. Mm-hmm. Because it is. Yeah. The servant songs, you are Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. It clearly says that Israel is the servant. But then Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, which some seems to make a distinction between us 
and him. Mm-hmm. And the answer is Jesus is the consummate Israel and was being baptized for Israel and taking on the sins for Israel. And therefore he is the true Israelite. He is the true son of David. He is the true son of Abraham. He is the true son of Adam. He is the true human. As Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God mm-hmm. in Colossians chapter one. So as we wrap this up, deep theology, it's yeah. pulling from the Old Testament. It's pulling from, like we said, from the gospel accounts of Jesus, but it's not merely theology. And we talked about this in our intro, like the whole thing is ethical as well. And so I, some of the things that I especially love about these first few chapters outside of the introduction, but just the reminder of things like self-righteousness, how like, yeah, we all have sinned. And guess what? Especially for the religious person who you think you have it. Uh, mm-hmm. Chapter two mm-hmm. always strikes a chord with me uh, because it's, it's that constant reminder of, Hey, I would not want God judging me with the same standard that I place on other people because yeah. I'm going to fail my own standard. And there's just so much application there, just right, especially for the religious person. I think Tim Keller has done a great job of bringing those themes out and so much of his ministry, especially as it addresses re- the religious people. Uh, mm-hmm. So that, that's something that I always pull, you know, from, from this section. I don't, what, what, what do you pull from these first few chapters? Well, I think you're going to hear me say this a lot. If you haven't already heard me say this, I, what I pull from this is the fact that Israel was chosen to be God's image bearers, to reveal his glory for the sake of the nations. And if Jesus is that fulfillment, and then we are in Jesus, then we too are called not for the sake of ourselves simply, but so that we therefore also can reflect God's glory to the nations. And we make him known and we're his image bearers. And what that means is, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Mm. They'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. Ah, to be his image bearers, to reflect his glory to the nations is to love like Jesus loved. And the love like he loved was sacrificial love to lay down our life for the sake of the other. And I think when we start to wrap our minds around that, it changes the entire dynamic of everything we do, whether it's the abortion debate, because I don't think we're going about it in a loving way, or whether it's about politics or government, or whether I care for the homeless person, or whether I how I treat my spouse, uh, my kids, and my neighbor, and the way I do my job. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you were called to make God known and reflect Mm. his glory to the nations. Um, And Jesus did that. And obviously, therefore, we stop and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, right? Praise the Lord. And then say, okay, now empower me is what Romans 8 is going to be about. Empower me now to do that. Mm. Good stuff. Thanks. Awesome. Next week, we'll dive into something else new. That will be awesome. uh, Can't we just do a whole year in Romans? Okay. Well, that again, so if, if you haven't <laughs> noticed really quickly that we stopped saying, Vinny stopped saying at the beginning, hey, uh, we're going through the Bible in a year. We're like, yeah, we, you know, and when we hit Romans, we realized there's no way we, we got to do seven, eight <laughs> weeks in Romans. So next week, we're going to discuss Romans four and then nine through 11. Well, what about Israel? Is there a promise to Israel? What about national Israel today? We'll get to those questions there. And then we'll do Romans eight. And we uh, should have Scott McKnight coming on hopefully in a few weeks. And that's our plan. And maybe even another couple of scholars to come on and have another discussion about Romans 9 to 11, if we can. Awesome. That's going to be fun. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Roberto. No problem, Dennis. I, I, I'm calling. <laughs> 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 yes, that's that's just for my friends, though, uh, and family. They don't even know. That's a whole other story. We could do a story on that. Anyway, we'll see everyone next time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.